Welcome to the markets. Hello again. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson for our weekly look at market activity all the way from Wall Street to the livestock feedlots and the soybean fields of the Midwest. Dateline Chicago, Friday, June 14, Flag Day in the United States. Our flag is flying. I hope yours is flying too. But a relatively quiet week from the standpoint of volatility in the stock market this week. So let's look at the numbers first of all. Dow Jones Industrial Average down 17 points today, and it ended at 26,089. Did drop below the 26,000 level, but just briefly before it came back. The S&P 500 ended down four and three quarter points at 2887. And the NASDAQ down 39 points at 77.97. And very little change for the week in those indices. For the week, the S&P rose half a percent. The Dow added a little less than half a percent. And the NASDAQ gained not quite three quarters of a percent. So let's check the story on what happened to end the trading week, and let's look at today. Stocks ended lower, as you heard, as uh, investors were a bit cautious going into next week's Federal Reserve meeting, while a warning from Broadcom of a broad weakening in global demand weighed on chip makers and added to U.S.-China trade worries. Shares of Broadcom fell 5.5% after it cut its full-year revenue forecast by $2 billion. They blamed the U.S.-China trade conflict for that drop in share prices today. Other chip companies, which both source product and sell heavily in China, also dropped sharply. And then investors are bracing for next week's Fed meeting in light of recent market expectations that the U.S. Central Bank could cut interest rates as much as three times this year. Some strategists say stocks are primed for a sell-off should the Fed fail to take an even more dovish tilt on interest rates. One analyst said, we're going to be on pins and needles until we get some indication from the Fed. That's what matters. Everybody is betting the Fed is going to cut rates, probably not in June, but soon. And that is a very crowded trade. The ongoing trade battle between the U.S. and China also gives investors reasons to play it safe ahead of the weekend. Another analyst said this is kind of a wait-and-see mode. People are staying very close to their benchmarks. And the Group of 20 Summit at the end of the month may also yield some progress on the trade deals that we're still waiting for. 
Today, during the session, shares of Apple slipped uh, three-quarters of a percent, with Broadcom, a major supplier to the iPhone maker, adding to global demand worries. Chinese data pointed to the worst slowdown in industrial growth in 17 years. China's industrial output growth in May slowed below expectations, showed signs of weakening demand. But in a bright spot, data showed U.S. retail sales increased in May, and sales for the prior month were revised higher, maybe suggesting a pickup in consumer spending that could ease fears the economy is slowing down sharply. Online pet products retailer Chewy Inc. ended up 59% in its market debut today. That means they joined a host of high-profile names such as Lyft and Uber Technologies that listed on U.S. stock exchanges so far this year. Let's uh, also check the oil price for the week because there is concern over the Middle East tensions at the moment. Oil prices rose today about 1% after attacks on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman this week raised concerns about potential supply disruptions. But prices remained on track for a weekly loss on fears that trade disputes will dent global oil demand. So, for the day, Brent futures up 70 cents a barrel, ending the week at $62.01, while the U.S. crude futures rose 23 cents, ending the week at $52.51 a barrel. The attacks on oil tankers near Iran and the Strait of Hormuz pushed oil prices up as much as 4.5% on Thursday. Now, this is the second time in a month that tankers have been attacked in the world's most important zone for oil supplies as tensions increase between the United States and Iran. So, now that we've looked at the week just ending, let's take a look at the week just ahead and what are we going to be watching for despite the Fed's meeting. That's number one on the list, of course. Federal Open Market Committee expected to announce its interest rate decision at the end of its two-day meeting, and uh, that will end on Wednesday. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell will hold an afternoon press conference following the closed-door Fed meeting. On the U.S. economic front next week, the Commerce Department expected to report on Friday that the existing home sales rose 1.2% to an annual rate of 5,250,000 units in May. Also, the Commerce Department expected to release its Housing Starts report on Tuesday. They see that could rise to an annual rate of 1,240,000 units. Building permits probably remained unchanged at a 1,290,000 units in May. Oracle Corporation expected to post a uh, decline in fourth quarter revenue on Wednesday. 
as growth in its cloud unit failed to offset a decline in its traditional software licensing business. Adobe expected to report an increase in second quarter revenue on Tuesday, driven by growth in the company's digital media business. Kroger Company expected to report a decline in first quarter profit on Thursday, as the grocer is investing heavily on improving its delivery services, store formats, and its online business to keep up in the race among U.S. grocery retailers. Investors will be especially interested in how Kroger's initiatives, including self-checkout aisles in stores and the partnership with a Silicon Valley startup to use self-driven cars for delivering groceries, and helping boost comparable store sales. Barnes & Noble expected to report a drop in fourth quarter revenue on Wednesday, but investors likely paying more attention to any update the company gives on its $475.8 million deal with hedge fund Elliott Management Corporation. And as usual, Federal Reserve... Governors from around the country will be making a lot of speaking appearances next week, but that's become regular, it seems like, every week on the Fed's calendar. MetLife shareholders set to vote at the insurer's annual meeting on compensation for executives. That'll happen on Tuesday. And then, looking to our neighbors to the north, Statistics Canada expected to report annual inflation rate edged up to 2.2% in May. That would be up from 2% in April. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau scheduled to travel to Washington on Thursday to meet with President Trump for talks on a new continental trade pact and China's detainment of two Canadians. And again this week, reports that Canada and Mexico are ready to sign the new North American trade agreement. United States? No. As usual, Congress sitting on its hands, not doing anything on some of the important issues like trade and immigration legislation just isn't happening on Wall Street. Some of the reports that were issued this week that impacted Wall Street, uh, weekly jobless claims went up. That was a little bit of a surprise because the uh, uh, initial claims for state unemployment benefits rose 3,000 to 222,000 for the week ended June 8. And analysts polled before the release were expecting a decline in the total number to 216,000. But positive news in the factory output story. U.S. manufacturing output rose in May. That's the first monthly gain this year as an increase in the production of motor vehicles and parts encountered declines in the making of metals and aerospace equipment. Federal Reserve said today manufacturing production rose two-tenths of a percent last month, slightly higher than analysts had expected. And again, the data could give 
some respite to concerns that the U.S. factory sector is sagging under the weight of a slowing global economy. Also on the positive side, U.S. retail sales increased in May and sales for the prior month were revised higher, suggesting maybe a pickup in consumer spending. Fairly upbeat report from the Commerce Department today followed a raft of weak data, including a step down in hiring in May and tame inflation readings. Financial markets have priced in two rate cuts this year, driven primarily by a recent escalation in the trade war between the United States and in China. And, of course, that's been going on forever and daily. The headline on that one changes. U.S. consumer prices barely went up in May as a rebound in the cost of food was offset by cheaper gasoline. Labor Department said Wednesday its consumer price index edged up just a tenth of a percent last month. And in excluding the volatile food and energy components, the CPI nudged up a tenth of a percent for the fourth straight month. A couple of other notes. Federal Aviation Administration this week said they do not have a specific timetable on when the Boeing 737 MAX would return to service. And then on the other hand, we had this story from American Airlines. The grounded Boeing 737 MAX is, quote, highly likely to be flying by mid-August. Those words from American Airlines Chief Executive Doug Parker, and he shared that with shareholders on Wednesday of this week. Self-driving cars, they continue to be in the news about every week. Volkswagen and Ford are close to reaching a deal on a partnership for developing self-driving cars. Volkswagen and the number two U.S. automaker have been in talks for months, and the comments on progress are the most definitive from Volkswagen in some time. The talks are going well, quote now, going well and are nearly complex, according to the Volkswagen CEO. And uh, one other note, Salesforce.com agreed this week to buy big data firm Tableau Software. Price tag, $15 billion, adding muscle in its fight with Microsoft for a bigger share of the market that helps businesses target customers better. Well, again, we'll be focusing on the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee meeting next week. But right now, we're going to get ready for Max Armstrong to join us here in the studio with a special market guest. That will happen when we continue on the markets. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help. 
We enjoy visiting with him several times each year. The chief commodities economist for INTLFC Stone, Arlen Suderman. Arlen, we're at the end of the week when not only the corn market uh, showed some gains, but soybeans came around too. This has been kind of an interesting week. Share your thoughts on that. It has been, and uh, we started out the week with a more open forecast with the market thinking, okay, we can get the crop planted now, and and of course the market's always have thought if we can just get it planted, then we can produce the crops. American farmer does such a good job, um, even though it's late. Uh, but then as we got later in the week, the forecasts really started confirming what what several forecasters we follow anyway had been saying, that as we get in the last half of June, things turn quite wet once again especially uh, for southern parts of the Midwest. And uh, so it looked like we slammed the door shut on any remaining late planting of corn and uh, start putting at risk the ability to get the soybean crop planted as well. That forecast for more wet weather is a big part of the story, isn't it? I mean, we, we see this continuing, if I follow the forecast correctly, on into the early days of July. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a real concern. Now, that doesn't close the door to getting soybeans planted, but it makes it much more difficult. Soybeans are more day-length sensitive versus corn that needs a certain number of heat units, uh, but it, that does have implications for yield. We can still plant soybeans in a wider window. It will be after the full insurance deadline, um, but at least they can get planted if, in fact, we do see some dry weather in July, but that's still a big question mark right now. After all was said and done, how much damage was done by that USDA report earlier in the week? Well, I think the USDA surprised us uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, um, they matched my yield at 166 bushels an acre. I just didn't expect them to do this that this soon. And that makes you start thinking, okay, how bad might it be? Because USDA really wants to be conservative in, in its early season adjustments. Um, but I think that's all the further we have data to show right now is down to 166. They did reduce acreage by 3 million, and that was a surprise as well. Not that the, not the number itself, but that they would reduce acreage that far this soon. I think the market's expecting more yield reductions and acreage reductions as we go, um, but the, that probably will not happen in the June 28th report since that was an early June survey when farmers still intended on planting. And on soybeans, no adjustments at all other than to cut old crop exports. That was justified. There may be more cuts in old crop exports before we go, and I think there will see some significant cuts in new crop exports as well. Well, that was kind of the dominant feature early until the weather forecast turned wet, and we thought, well, maybe the weather will take care of our surplus supplies of soybeans. Looking toward Monday's planting progress report and condition report, what are your expectations? Well, that's always a, a little bit tricky this time of year when it talks about progress because the question surveyors are asked of, of intended acres, what percent is planted? And the intentions change. As farmers give up planting, those intentions change. But overall, what we're looking for right now is about 91% planting. Um, and with the door shutting, that would suggest that overall we'd be looking at uh, nationally 7.5 to 8 million acres not getting planted. And that doesn't include failed acres, which tend to be added on top of that in a year like this. On soybeans right now, I'm looking at, and this may change by Monday, 
Right now I'm looking at about 78% planted, which would still leave uh, about 17.8 million acres of the original intended acres still unplanted. As I said, there's a little bit of time, but that window is closing with this forecast. Some have indicated there might be 10 million unplanted corn acres. You're, you're not of that uh, school just yet? I think it's possible, but a USDA typically, traditionally, under-reports prevent plant acres, and B, I don't have the data to support that. As I talk to our offices, which we have people working in nearly every state, and I say, okay, what do you think's gone unplanted? What do you think will not get planted? That type of thing, and I add it all up. Uh, I, I come up with that seven, I come up with 7.6 million acres, and then I go with the external states that aren't involved in, uh, in the main production states, and I add about another half million or so to that. So, uh, I just can't get to that 10 million with hard data. We haven't yet seen the funds just pile into the market and run the prices up. Are we getting closer? We're getting closer from the standpoint, I think USDA woke them up a little bit. They've always been to this point, as we talk to them, of the attitude, the farmer's going to get it done and the crop is going to come. And I understand the farmer's done a good job of convincing them that with past history, but these are unprecedented times. So that kind of got their attention, but they still have trouble really wrapping their arms around how to treat a wet year. And that's typical because rain makes grain until rain doesn't make grain, like we saw in 1993. Now, what I keep hearing is, well, but the genetics are so much better this year. That that corn plant is a factory taking sunshine, water, and nutrients and converting it into starches. And no matter how good a technology you have inside of that factory, if it's shut down for six to eight weeks, it still has trouble reaching full production. And that's what we've done with this late planting is we've shut it down, plus with some of the planting conditions we had, we don't have the stand counts or the populations we need to really produce the crop. Finally, Arlen, as we look at these last few days of June ahead of us here and into that early July period, historically this has been such a crucial time in the production of the crops and ultimately the prices that are set. I guess it's dangerous to judge this year by any other that we've seen, but how would you put it in perspective of what's going to take place here over the next uh, month or so? I really think weather forecasts and perceptions about planted acreage is going to be key. I wouldn't be surprised if corn crop ratings actually see a bump at some point as the crop is able to put down some roots into the nitrogen, catch up with the nitrogen that's been leaching lower, and we may see a bump in the ratings before they fall to new lows by harvest time. So I think that, again, is going to add some confusion to the market. So I think we're going to see some big price swings up and down that's going to be frustrating to farmers as the market tries to get a grasp on how much rationing has to occur. Thanks, Arlen. From the offices of INTLFC Stone, Arlen Suderman. There's no question that weather continued to be foremost in the minds of farmers and ranchers across the country this past week. But there were some other activities also that were looked at carefully. First of all, Two Midwest senators today said they have introduced a bill to reform the Environmental Protection Agency's Biofuel Waiver Program. That's the program the corn industry says helps big oil companies at the expense of farmers by threatening ethanol demand. The bill was introduced by Republican Deb Fisher of Nebraska and Democrat Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. 
It would impose a June 1st deadline for refineries to apply for the waivers that exempt them from blending ethanol into gasoline. That would allow time for the EPA to calculate the volumes waived and apply them to the next year's blending mandates. The measure would require the agency to report to lawmakers on the methodology used to decide whether a waiver is granted and would make other elements of the largely confidential waiver process more transparent. The bill's introduction comes after reports that the EPA had given waivers to facilities run by majors like ExxonMobil and Chevron Corporation. The EPA has said it considers only the economics of the refinery requesting a waiver and not the well-being of its owner. Senator Duckworth said farmers across Illinois and throughout the Midwest are hurting and ethanol plants are idling while the EPA is abusing the small refinery exemption program to undermine the bipartisan renewable fuel standard. So uh, we'll see how far that legislation goes, but it was a bipartisan introduction, Republican and Democrat, and we'll see how far that one goes. USDA stirred up a hornet's nest this week. I'm always surprised, sometimes amazed, at what gets people upset. The USDA had announced months ago that it was going to move some of the USDA agencies out of Washington and move them closer to where agriculture actually happens. And the only time agriculture happens on Capitol Hill is when they write a farm bill. So anyway, they have been studying applications from various cities across the country and this past uh, this week, the department announced that it will relocate two research agencies headquartered in Washington. It'll move them to the Kansas City area. That delighted Kansas and Missouri officials, but it intensified critics' fears that research will suffer and be less accessible to federal policymakers. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue said that moving most employees out of Washington will bring the Economic Research Service and National Institution uh, Institute of Food and Agriculture closer to farmers and agribusinesses they serve. He also said the USDA would save about $20 million a year on rent and other employee costs, freeing up extra dollars for research. Well, members of the Kansas and Missouri congressional delegations and the two states' governors praised the move by the USDA, saying the research agencies are a good fit for their region. The USDA said nearly 550 of the roughly four, 640 jobs will move, and uh, Representative Emanuel Cleaver, a Missouri Democrat, said they will pay between 80000 and and $100,000 a year. 
But critics said the research agencies have lost veteran employees and have been unable to fill vacancies since the USDA announced last year it was considering moving their headquarters. Opponents also argued that moving them will make it harder for federal policymakers to get objective research that might raise questions about some of the policies. One critic of the program, Mike Lavender, senior manager for the Scientist Group Food and Environment Program, said this is a blatant attack on science and will especially hurt farmers, ranchers, and eaters at a particularly vulnerable time. The question I ask uh, of these critics, do you not know about Internet and communicating information instantly on the Internet? Apparently not. So let's see where we ended the trading week today and where we'll be starting the trading week on Monday. First of all, a pretty good day in the grain market again. A pretty good week, as a matter of fact. The July wheat contract gained four cents a bushel today. Corn was up 11 and three quarters cents a bushel. That's at a five year high. $4.53. July soybeans ended up nine and a quarter cents at $8.96 and three quarters. Mercantile exchange, totally different story in livestock. Red screen there, the August lean hog contract down $2.77 a hundredweight. August live cattle down 32 cents. August feeder cattle down 85 cents a hundredweight. So we'll wait over the weekend to see what happens next week. As always, Max Armstrong and yours truly, Orion Samuelson, appreciate your company. And thank you for joining us on The Markets.